2022 was completely cancelled, but apparently no one told Xbox. It's still planning to have its E3 press conference the same day and time as usual. Will other publishers follow suit? Good morning! Good Friday morning to you! The weekend is here! I'm Shane Satterfield from Sifted, and this is Good Morning Gaming for April 29th, 2022. If you'd prefer to consume the show the way it's intended, in a podcast feed so you can listen on your phone as you get ready for work or head on your commute, Go to patreon.com slash sifted and drop us a pledge. It's free on our YouTube channel for everyone else, but you're going to have to watch a couple ads. You can find our flagship show, Game Face, by searching your favorite podcast service. Please give the show a review if you can. So E3 2022 was canceled, but Xbox is like, whatever. Just like every other year, it's having a massive press conference on June 12th. The Xbox and Bethesda Game Showcase will be happening on a Sunday preceding what would have been E3 week. It will also begin at its normal time of 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. The show will only exist as a live stream and will not have in-person attendance, which is a bummer. According to Xbox's announcement, the Xbox and Bethesda Game Showcase will include everything you need to know about the diverse lineup of games coming soon to the Xbox ecosystem, including upcoming releases to Game Pass on Xbox and PC. This is all great news. Now, the big question is whether other publishers will do the same. Now, a couple have already announced that they're doing their big mid-year presentations a little later than normal. THQ Nordic, which has turned into a big player, by the way, is having its big event August 12th. In the teaser for the event, at least 12 games were shown, so it looks like it's going to be a doozy. Then, in March... Electronic Arts announced that it canceled its annual EA Play event that would happen alongside E3 every year. Last year, the event was delayed until July, but this year it's been canceled altogether. In a statement to IGN, EA explained, We love EA Play as it's our way of connecting with our players and sharing what's new with all of you. However, this year things aren't lining up to show you everything on one date. It sounds like we'll be getting individual events later this year, but it's a shame because EA would have had a great E3 lineup with Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order 2, the Dead Space remake, and whatever the replacement for FIFA is going to be called. So that's two big boys who already took their balls and went home, but what about everyone else? I have a feeling some of them will be looking at things the way EA is. Do they have enough to show at one given moment? PlayStation, I think, is a given. While I think it may come a week or two before or after the usual E3 slot, I do think that Sony will try to do something to counter-program against the Xbox presser. If it wasn't planning on doing anything before, it will now. And then of course there's Nintendo. There's basically a 100% chance that it will produce and publish an E3-sized Nintendo Direct in June. It has so much to show. The sequel to Breath of the Wild, Bayonetta 3, Splatoon 3, Pokemon Scarlet and Violet, Xenoblade Chronicles 3, Metroid Prime 4, fingers crossed, and so many more. It's just too much and too big for Jeff Keighley's Summer Games Fest to contain. Oddly enough, I believe some of the Japanese publishers are more likely to do something in the appropriate window. Japanese companies are very regimented and are honed to produce assets and builds like clockwork each year. Just look at last year's E3. I wasn't surprised that Square Enix and Capcom 
were two of the major publishers to participate when many others didn't. I would expect something from both of them around the same time. Devolver is another publisher I'm almost 100% sure will have some type of digital event in June. It's kind of built its brand on those wacky shows at this point. One publisher I do not see having an event is Ubisoft. It's in the midst of receiving offers from potential buyers, and it doesn't appear to have much to show anyway. We just recently got a report that a lot of its franchises just aren't ready to be shown yet and probably aren't going to be released for another year or more. So I just don't see it happening. The company has also been bleeding up to 12% of its talent over the last year and a half. A bad E3 time press conference could really only do harm for its potential sale at this point. So while E3 is technically canceled, I do believe that we will have somewhat of a normal game preview season that we've become accustomed to in June. With Microsoft announcing something so early, it will only convince more publishers to jump aboard. It appears that we might be saved by the ghost of E3's past. And now for a couple more stories from the top of your sifts. Overwatch has been struggling of late as players leave in a mass exodus and sordid stories emerge from working at Blizzard. But the franchise just had its biggest day ever on Twitch thanks to what essentially amounts to a bribe. Overwatch 2 reached over 1.5 million, that's a lot, concurrent views on the streaming service today and it only took a little manipulation from Blizzard. You see, you have to watch four hours of someone streaming Overwatch 2 to get a beta key of your own and play the game for yourself. Some will call it genius marketing, some will call it manipulation, but no one can complain with the results. More sessions are coming if you feel like burning four hours to play the Overwatch 2 beta, or you could just turn it on and let it sit. We won't judge. Venture Beats' Jeff Grubb is a busy dude, and today he shared some of the first details on Respawn's Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order 2. Well, according to him, it's actually not called that anymore. He claims the Fallen Order part is being removed, so Star Wars Jedi 2 it is. Grubb also claims that it will be exclusive for PS5 and Xbox Series consoles and PC. He mentions that he's heard that we'll see a good bit of the game at Star Wars Celebration, but it won't actually release until 2023. The first game was my game of the year in an admittedly weak year for game releases, so I have high hopes for this sequel. Blizzard has announced that next Tuesday, May 3rd, it will be unveiling a brand new mobile game set in the Warcraft universe. Michael Pachter has been hinting at such a game for a couple years now, and it appears that the publisher is finally ready to show it. To this point, the only Warcraft game on mobile has been the card battler called Hearthstone. If you're unhappy that it's a mobile game, Sifter Raphael Michael has your solution when he commented, couple of death threats and they'll make it available for PC. No worries. A live stream will kick off at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, and it will be curated to your Sifts, so don't fear that you'll miss it, provided you're using Sifted anyway. And why the hell aren't you? Seriously. Sony recently hired a games preservation engineer named Garrett Fredley, and he says his new job is more about making code assets and tools available for future generations than emulation like people assumed. Fredley explains that game preservation is a process where games can still be brought back and played after 100 years of storage. He says it's about storing the tools, data, documentation, servers, clients, and compilers necessary to recreate a game from scratch not just putting raw code in an archive. He's only been on the job for two days, and even he admits he's not 100% sure what it will ultimately entail. But with more expensive tiers of PlayStation Plus offering Sony's back catalog, there's a big financial incentive as well. 
On yesterday's GMG, I mentioned that both Sega and Konami had basically removed their entire catalogs from PlayStation Plus, and I wondered if Sony already had a plan in place to replace them. Well, the news today is a start, as Bandai Namco appears to have pledged allegiance. Eagle-eyed fans have spotted Tekken 2, Ridge Racers 2, and Mr. Driller in the PlayStation Network backend. A couple Worms games have also been uncovered. So the service lost 60 games yesterday and gained 5 today. Just 55 more to go. In a surprise to no one, today Activision officially announced that this year's Call of Duty is a rework of Modern Warfare 2. The publisher already did this with the first Modern Warfare back in 2019, and it ended up being the best-selling Call of Duty of all time. And that's saying something. Activision has been showing the new Modern Warfare 2 privately this week to NFL draft prospects in Las Vegas. We usually get the first look at each new Call of Duty sometime in May, and it looks like that pattern is about to repeat. Activision is using Roman numerals for the two in this rework to differentiate it from the 2009 original. Let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll tackle today's boss fight. Welcome to today's Boss Fight, where I discuss topics that may, or may not be, related to video games. So the creator of Sonic the Hedgehog, Yuji Naka, helmed one of the worst games in recent memory. Now, he's saying that his poor quality isn't his fault, but is he really telling the truth? One of the biggest stories of 2021 was just how bad Yuji Naka's Balan Wonderworld was. It was undoubtedly one of the worst games of the year, and easily the worst game with a semi-decent budget. In fact, I can't remember a game with a decent budget that was as bad as that one in the last decade. That's how bad Balan Wonderworld is. Well, now, Naka is claiming that he was removed as the game's director six months before it launched. He claims he's filed a lawsuit against Square Enix for his termination, but only now is able to speak about it. His allegations are serious and eye-opening. In a series of tweets, he claims that the game was not finished and he was forcibly removed from the project. He also claims that he tried to protect the integrity of the game's music production and it caused issues with management. He also tweeted that he was blamed for the relationship with co-developer Arzest being ruined because he pushed back on buggy code the studio had submitted. He also asserts that he was banned from retweeting, liking, or responding to comments on social media regarding the game. Above all, he apologizes to fans for representing a game that turned out to be terrible. There's no denying that Balan Wonderworld essentially destroyed Yuji Naka's career. So if he believes that it's Square Enix's fault, he certainly has grounds to file a lawsuit, but it was already headed in a bad direction. As I said, he created Sonic the Hedgehog and really excelled during the Sega Genesis era. For all intents and purposes, he was Sega's answer to Shigeru Miyamoto for a spell. His Sonic team built the Sonic brand, but also acted as sort of tastemakers at Sega during its Dreamcast era and beyond. It was also responsible for one of the most groundbreaking console games of all time, Fantasy Star Online. Back then, if something had Sonic Team's name on it, you paid attention to it. At the same time, he was responsible for a lot of the first party output for Dreamcast 
and the console quickly failed. He continued on that role as Sega went multi-platform, and its new games continued to underperform. The first cracks really started to show with Sonic Adventure 2. The first Sonic Adventure was more of a technical showcase than a great game, but it showed some promise. Its sequel never really built on that, though. It relied instead more on gimmicks with the Dreamcast VMU memory cards. After the release of Phantasy Star Online, Naka's career would begin a steady decline, and that decline began with Billy Hatcher. It was a GameCube game about rolling a massive egg around. I'm not kidding. It was a bizarre concept at the time, and it's still bizarre today. And this has really been the root of his issues. He followed up with an equally unappealing game called Rodea the Sky Soldier in 2015, 12 years later. His projects have become increasingly strange over time, and Balan Wonderworld was the tipping point. Naka is trying to blame the game's poor quality on being removed from the project six months before it was released, but by then, a game's course is predominantly set. It should be feature complete and have a build that can be finished. All that's left at that point are final tweaks and plenty of polish and bug smashing. Naka also claims that Square Enix forced the game to be released before it was complete and became angry with him when he pushed back on code filled with bugs from a development partner. But the problems with Balan Wonderworld have nothing to do with bugs. In fact, I don't remember the game ever crashing on me. The problem with the game is that it's just bad. A bad concept, bad art, bad gameplay, bad level design, bad music, just bad, bad, bad. In fact, it's hard for me to come up with just about any redeeming value the game has. All of this is Naka's doing. It has nothing to do with anything he's alleging Square Enix did. It's much more likely that the publisher saw that the game was terrible in every respect, had already spent far too much money on it, and just wanted it finished so it could move on, essentially just cutting bait. Naka complaining or slowing down that process would most certainly grate on the nerves during that time period, because you would then realize that even then, he was still unable to see that his concepts weren't working and are completely alien to any sort of lucrative market. Naka left Sega in 2006, launched his own game studio, and never released anything of significance. Twelve years later, he joined Square Enix, where for some idiotic reason, the publisher handed him a development studio and let him make Balan Wonderworld. That's on Square Enix. It was a nostalgia play that blew up in its face. By the end of 2021, he was out at Square Enix, and he learned how to program mobile games. He released one, no one cared, and then he said he might retire. With all due respect to what the man accomplished in the 16-bit era, and somewhat in the Dreamcast era, he has to be one of the most overrated game developers of all time. It's remarkable that he managed to stay relevant until just last year. I've been lucky enough to meet Yuji Naka multiple times, and he is undoubtedly one of the most affable, approachable game developers I've ever been around. He has always treated me or my teams with respect, and based on my limited interactions, he seems like a good dude. He certainly has an air of positivity about him, which I really like, and some charisma. And I'm sure most of his teams enjoyed working for him, but sometimes the writing is on the wall. And in this case, it had been on the wall for so long that perhaps it had faded and Square Enix was no longer able to see it. I have no doubt that he will be successful in whatever he decides to do next. But game development 
hasn't been a strength of his for a long, long time. I think this is a cautionary tale as well. Naka comes off as a nice guy, and really, he is. But sometimes people like that can cloud our judgment and cause us to give them the benefit of the doubt when we really shouldn't. Was Naka done wrong by Square Enix? Probably. Was the poor state of Balan Wonderworld Square Enix's fault? Absolutely not. Sometimes we romanticize these old school developers and side with them when they complain that they've been treated poorly. But anyone looking at the actual evidence in this situation can see what the real story is. We often lionize people we shouldn't. In fact, I saw a couple other gaming podcasts today where they just basically took what Naka said for face value and blame Square Enix instead. Don't be fooled. Thanks for listening to Good Morning Gaming. I appreciate every single one of you who listens to GMG. I'm Shane Satterfield. Follow me on Twitter at Dinfire and follow Sifted at Sifted Games. And when you're done there, head to patreon.com slash sifted and drop us a pledge. The show will be back on Monday, but until then, seize this weekend because there will never be another. <laughs>